You're listening to the Can Dare Podcast, your sidekick in the quest for knowledge, power, and entertainment. So strap yourselves in and prepare for victory! Hi, this is Neil Ross, and I'm listening to the Canned Air Podcast. Good thing, too, because I've got better things to do tonight than die. Transformers! Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Candare, your tribute to comics and pop culture. I am Jeremy Colley. I'm Jack Doherty. I'm Randy Hardenbrook. And we have a few special guests joining us today. First, a good friend of mine who's probably the biggest Transformer buff I know and biggest toy collector I know. I go on about the toys I have. <laughs> I've got shit compared to what this guy's got. <laughs> Mr. Nathaniel Tennant, thank you for being here, Nathaniel. Glad I could be here. And our guest of honor today. We have voiceover royalty here today. Uh, Spider-Man, he was Norman Osborn, the Green Goblin, Voltron, he was Keith and Pidge, G.I. Joe, Buzzer and Shipwreck, Transformers, Springer, Bone Crusher, Hook, Slag, and my God, this is the tip of the tip of the iceberg. Go to his IMDb. You've heard his voice out there, the legendary Neil Ross. Neil, thank you so much for being here with us today. Oh, my pleasure, guys. Good to be with you. Thanks for inviting me. Looking forward to it. We're going to have some fun. We're going to have fun. Uh, What we're going to be doing in our retro roundtable, Neil was awesome enough to join us for. I love it when we get the guests to uh, sit in the uh, retro with us. Heck yeah. Just it's so much more fun. We're going to be talking about some of our favorite henchmen today. From what I'm hearing from you guys, before we started recording, got a good list. Got yeah. a good list going. And then after that, we're going to turn our attention over to Neil. And uh, you know, we were going to we had it kind of separated at first. We're going to talk career and then book. But seeing as they're kind of one and the same, we're just going to talk about the book and the career the whole time. <laughs> uh, again, which is a vocal recall, a life in radio and voiceover. And uh, people, you can also go to neilbook.com where you can get the first five chapters for free, like a free downloadable PDF preview, which is, uh, again, it's a great read. We've been reading it all weekend and love it. So check that out. Can't wait to hear more about that. But before we do all of that, don't forget to find us on Twitter at CandairPod and on Instagram at Canned underscore Air. And uh, head over to CandarePodcast.com. There you can get merch, and you can also become a patron for a few dollars a month, get access to a whole other show we do, the Candare Patreon Pod. Randy, I think you have a shout-out you want to do, sir. I do. I do want to do a uh, special shout-out to a kid named Derek. Uh, His mom reached out to us on one of our social media outlets uh, to let us know that Derek found our show and listens to it and loves it. Uh, he's on the spectrum and has a lot of trouble making friends and interacting with people kind of outside mm-hmm. and uh, has really kind of embraced the Canned Air uh, podcast. So uh, wow! by the time this dropped, Derek, you should have got something in the mail from us. So uh, so glad that you like us and so glad we could hang Welcome out. Welcome to the nation, brother. Yes, sir. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you have friends here. The Canned Air Nation is a very <laughs> warm, welcoming nation, I would say, right? Absolutely. Welcome aboard, sir. And I thank you for listening. We all thank you for listening and Enjoy those, uh, those, those, what are we sending anyway? We uh, sent him a hoodie. Oh, wow. Ooh. Wow. Look at this guy. I don't even have a hoodie, man. <laughs> I don't mean either. I don't What's have any say? of our merch. I got What's our old say? stuff. Yeah, wow. Well, congrats to him. And again, thanks for listening. Is there anything else, gentlemen, you want to promote your show quick? 
Yeah, so if you're not doing anything on typically a Tuesday night, join <laughs> Jack and I uh, on Facebook Live, Twitch, and uh, YouTube as we kind of hang out, do some Jackbox games, uh, make asses of ourselves, and have some fun. So, <laughs> going back to the old marketing method, I see. You know, tried and true method there, Jeremy. <laughs> yeah, I can't argue with results, I guess. All right, is that everything? I think That's so. It. Let's kick it off with this week's retro roundtable. Do it! Come on! I'm here! Come on! Do it now! Oh my god! Grass! Taste bad! Alright, our favorite henchmen from throughout pop culture. Randy, can you kick us off? Yeah, so uh my uh, I always grew up uh, watching James Bond flicks, and mm. unfortunately, we lost Connery uh, a few weeks ago. Yeah, that was that was unfortunate. But one of my favorite henchmen in all those movies uh, was the third movie, Goldfinger, uh, a guy by the name of Oddjob, who was uh, a shorter dude that had a bowler hat with a razor on it. And I think the first oh, scene yes. you see him, and you see him throw that thing, and it cuts the head off a, a marble statue. And um, was only in one Bond movie, and the uh, <clears throat> just seeing him like rise up with the uh, video game uh, Goldeneye, where All everybody right. absolutely can't stand him. <laughs> 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 He's the only guy that has that special move in the game, and it, it was a lot of fun seeing him. And that's a cool character, though. I, I've never seen that film, though. I, I don't know. I need to bone up on, on Bond. See, when I was uh, in high school, it was the, uh, what, what were the Bonds that were coming out? Well, uh, uh, Goldeneye. Pierce, Pierce Bronson. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, I mean, I enjoyed those films, but when that's what you're being brought in on Bond, you know. More action. It's kind of weak. Spot, yeah, yeah. I, I feel like if I would have grown up with the Connery Bonds and stuff, it had a much more uh, lasting impression. I had a Roger Moore Bond was the one that I grew up with more. It's still different going to Sean Connery. because first Bond I ever saw was Octopussy. Well, the, <laughs> was the Living Daylights, I think. Was, the, was that well, the one? That was Timothy Dalton. That was to me, yeah. That was the bad one. The one Bonder. Hey, no, that's my, one of my favorites. <laughs> <laughs> throw it down, Jack. View to a Kill, that's what it was. Okay. That's the one, yeah. Grace Jones, I think, was in Yep, and uh, more cowbell guy. Uh, my brain just totally crapped out. Will Ferrell? No. Christopher Walken. Christopher Walken. Thank you. Was Chris he Walken. That one? Yep, he was the bad guy. I'll have to check that one I out. I said Will on. Ferrell. What an asshole, man. <laughs> wow. Of course it was Christopher Walken. Um, wow. Okay. Well, that was a good pick, though. That was a good pick. Uh, Neil, why don't we uh, head over to you next? Favorite henchman? Well, I this is not actually a henchman. It's a hench dog, because you said... Uh, Animation was uh, available. Oh, absolutely. Anything uh, goes. It's funny. I, for someone who probably did more animation than anything else in my voiceover career, I, I did not grow up watching cartoons. We didn't have a TV in the house, and uh, I was raised in Montreal, Canada, and kids under 16 couldn't go to movies in those days. No kidding. Uh, yeah, they'd had a terrible theater fire in the 40s, and they passed these draconian laws. And the only way they could let kids into movies under the age of 16, they had to put on 50 extra ushers and jump through all kinds of hoops, so they just didn't do it. So I really didn't see a lot of animation when I was growing up. My my influences were more along the lines of radio. But uh, I did. there's this one show that I did see. I think I t stumbled into it when I was an adult, but it still made me laugh. And that's uh, Dick Dastardly. <laughs> and, All uh, and, uh, wacky races? Was he in? Yeah. And yeah. His, uh, his, uh, his uh, uh, hench dog, uh, Muttley. 
Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> who would always uh, sabotage Dick Dastardly and then laugh at him. Yeah. <laughs> I had the delight. They brought the characters back. They brought a bunch of Hanna-Barbera characters back. They put it in a show called The Fender Bender 500. Some of them they had to recast because the actors were no longer available. But in the case of Dick Dastardly and Muttley, uh, uh, Paul Winchell and Don Messick showed up and recreated those characters. And I got such a kick out of watching Don Messick do Muttley that... <laughs> <laughs> I, can't, I can't do it. That's why Don got the big money, and then the the foe swearing. Reza, Reza, oh yeah. Reza. Paul Winchell looked like Dick Dastardly, kind of, especially when he was doing the lines. It was, uh, and I I would have to stifle laughter watching them. I I got such a kick out of that. So that's that's my first nominee. Whenever I uh, see Home Alone and see Joe Pesci get hurt when he does that scene, yeah, exactly I, I always think, think of, of Muttley, yep. too. You know, I like, wonder if that's where that inspiration was uh, drawn from. <laughs> it was horrible in that the new the CG movie Scoob that came out earlier this year. Mm-hmm. That they, they totally changed Dick Dastardly. He's more of a... Did they really? Yeah. He's a supervillain. Yeah, he's more of a supervillain. He's not quite as, I guess, bumbling. But then they brought Muttley out, and he was exactly the same. He was still foiling and laughing. <laughs> yeah, that was nice, refreshing to see him come back. Right. That's good. That's a good pick. I, I wouldn't have thought of them. But see, you guys, I had so much trouble with this, which is why it kind of led to my pick. I'm glad with my pick, but we'll get to that a little later. Um, Jack, do you want to go next? Yeah, I'll go next. Mine is a uh, kind of a spy movie, too, kind of like Randy's. And the, the henchman that was one of my favorites was... He wore a bowler also, I think, and his name was Random Task, except for a hat he threw a shoe. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Way to just total rip off my pick, man. <laughs> sounds Powers. like the, the all Austin Powers. Yes. I forgot. No, that's not what mine was. I just <laughs> thought about that while he was talking about odd job. Well, not Random Task. <laughs> <laughs> no, mine is uh, from Dragon Ball Z, the henchmen that that were the minions for Frieza, the Ginyu Force. Oh yes, and I don't know what it is. They're not really well. Most of the time, you think of henchmen, they're bumbling fools and stuff. But these guys really weren't. They were good fighters, and that's why I was having so much trouble because mm. it's you know our favorite. I, I took that as like the best henchmen, and all I could think mm. of were d- bumbling dolts. Yeah. You know what I mean? I'm sorry. Continue. <laughs> the shining moment is when. They come out and announce. They've always got to announce themselves. And when they do, they stand in some kind of crazy pose. And then it's just this big, like, light flare behind them. And they're in these weird poses where they got their arm. <laughs> totally <laughs> ripping it's, off Power it's Rangers. Hilarious. Yeah, it's ex- yeah. pretty much the same oh. thing. But it's, yeah, it's great. I've never seen uh, Dragon Ball. <laughs> never seen it. Yeah, and, yeah, Nathaniel's lighting up like Christmas in disbelief. <laughs> it's funny because uh, on uh, the MMO of Final Fantasy fourteen that my wife and I play, uh, me and Jeff that used to be on the show, mm-hmm. we're running around and you can you can buy different perks for your character, emotes and stuff. And some of them are like power, they're Power Ranger poses. But Jeff, myself and Misty would be running around. And after we like fight some animal, I'd be like, hit it, Jeff. And we just do this pose and stand there, <laughs> and then just stand there frozen because that's what exactly what the guinea <laughs> forest. People did. just walk by like, what the hell are they <laughs> doing? <laughs> Only certain people would get it when they walk by. Very good, uh, Nathaniel. Let's go to you, henchman, sir. 
I'm a child of the 80s. I grew up watching almost exclusive, nothing other than cartoons, cartoons and Sesame Street. And so uh, my favorite henchman is, it was always Starscream because he was, he was Megatron's right-hand man. Megatron needed him. Uh, but at the same time, he was always looking to unseat Megatron and uh, yeah, take yeah. his spot as the leader. And a good pick at that. I think Megatron I, in effect. And I had oh heck yeah, Megatron there. He just didn't care. But he knew he, he needed him. Right there, he knew yeah. he needed him. So, <laughs> uh, kept him around. Plus, I had the toys that added to it as well. Yeah. <laughs> now, my, my my parents were hippies, so I wasn't allowed to have Megatron because he transformed into a gun. Mm. Oh, but, I have, no. but I could have Starscream, so I had the henchman be the leader. Damn hippies. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> and he was uh, portrayed by the late Chris lamented Lotta. Chris Latta. Wow. What a wonderful actor. And when did he uh, pass? Oh, it's quite a while ago. He died. He, it's a real, real tragedy. I believe he was only 46 when he passed. And it was, gosh, I'm trying to think now, late 80s, early 90s. I forget. Wow. I'd have to look it up. But uh, he, was, he was a mega talented guy. It's a shame. That's yeah. unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah. I always hate hearing those stories, but I guess we all have to go at some time, don't we? Um, not me. I don't know about you guys. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going anywhere. Well, let us know your secret, Neil, and uh, yes. maybe we can all stick around for eternity. Um, mm -hmm. I guess my pick, again, I said I was having trouble with this, trying to think, you know, when I think of henchmen, I think Bebop and Rocksteady. And I was like, yeah, they're not very competent. Plus, we just talked about them, it seemed like, a, just an episode or two ago. Um, again, I was thinking of like Otis, uh, you know, from Superman, like okay. Lex Luthor's yeah. again, just I don't a, know what happened, boss, just a dumbass, <laughs> just killing, man, just killing. But so I just, that became the struggle, like thinking of like the most effective, the best henchman I could think of. And boy, if the answer didn't come screaming to me since I was a child, since probably every one of us were children, these were probably the most horrifying henchmen, the winged monkeys in Wizard of Oz. Mm. Tell me you see a herd of these things flying at you and you're not just going to die of a heart attack before they even land like yeah. these. <laughs> and they were competent. I mean, they seem to get yeah. the job done. Right. Yeah, for sure. They were one for one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> Bring back Dorothy. <laughs> and they did it. So shut up. <laughs> 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 Can't argue with that. <laughs> okay. Is that to do a job? It's still it? an unbroken streak. Yeah. It's still a, <laughs> I don't know. I just, whenever they like showed them up close, they just were horrifying. And the fact that they were dressed up like almost like little bell keep too was mm -hmm. even more like confusing. I don't know. Am I wrong? You're all just staring no, at me. Was, like, when I was in college, there was a, uh, a video store just down the street from us. It was a dollar video rental place. Mm -hmm. And they had a Wizard of Oz mural on one of the walls in the store. And one of the pictures that someone had included in the mural was a close-up of one of the winged monkeys. And I would not walk anywhere close to that mural. <laughs> <sighs> They're horrifying. I'm trying to picture from the the show they they were they they had masks on right was it probably like a little person that was dressed up like i can't i would imagine i i'm not sure exactly how the special effects were done but however they were done bravo yeah bravo i mean especially when they do that there's that one scene where the camera starts to sweep along with the the road as they're coming in and landing i'm like oh okay <laughs> i would be turning tail and running back turn the other way and hope they pass you while you're running oh but that's just it with that many of them and the fact that they can fly you're not going anywhere right and they were practical effects too yeah, yeah. which i'll take yeah. over cgi any day oh yeah Easy. yeah but man 
Bravo, winged monkeys. <laughs> Bravo. <laughs> Neil, do you have another pick you'd like to do? Yeah, he uh, he started out as a henchman, and I think he's kind of coming into his own. But uh, I absolutely love the character of Mike Ehrmantraut, first seen in Breaking Bad, and it's uh, oh. in Better Call Saul. Yeah, and he's uh, kind of Saul Goodman's enforcer. And uh, this, this Jonathan Banks uh, does a, an, just an excellent job. A, a very menacing, frightening guy you would not want to cross no. on your best day. And then, of course, as they get into Better Call Saul, which is a prequel, you see how the how Saul and he meet and ultimately get together, and you learn a little bit of Mike's backstory. And it's a, just a really compelling character, and I I've absolutely fell in love with it. So he was uh, he was next on my list. It's got to be because of his backstory, because every he always played a henchman in so many movies in the 80s, and I always hated him. I would have to disagree. I mean, I think the Better Call Saul, I haven't seen all of Better Call Saul, but the backstory <laughs> enriches an already great character. Mm-hmm. Without Better yeah. Call Saul, he was an amazing character from front to back, and his death scene was probably one of the best in that oh. whole uh, series. I haven't finished Breaking Bad. Dude, you have had your chance. He dies? Oh. <laughs> I can't finish this. You guys will have to do it alone. <laughs> I need a minute. I really didn't know that, but I'm not, you know, that, that it's, it's one of those shows where they do those kinds of things, you know? Oh, my uh, God. You didn't. Oh, Prince, my God. Prince I really didn't spoil it. Killed. Oh, but don't I feel like a royal ass? <laughs> I will have forgotten about it. That or it will happen when I didn't expect it. Be like, oh, that's I bet right Neil won't. Yeah. Be like, that asshole podcaster ruined this shit. <laughs> I'm sorry, sir. Well, not not to worry. I'll uh, I'll soldier on. <laughs> uh, <laughs> At least I didn't know. say anything else about it, right? There you go. All right, all right, but a great pick. I would have uh, not, he wouldn't have come to mind for me. Uh, any other picks we want to go over? The minions. Uh, any other like good picks <laughs> we might want to go over? No. All right. <laughs> you set me up. Is what you did. That's what I you did. <laughs> all right. Well, let's turn our attention over to Neil and talk again uh, more about his career and uh, the book Vocal Recall: A Life in Radio in Voiceover. And once again, to our listeners at neilbook.com, you can get a free preview of the first five chapters. And again, uh, strongly, strongly recommend because it's been a book we haven't been able to put down. It's a great read. It really is. Yeah, and we're not really. We're not just kissing your ass, Neil. We mean this. We have well, been really you. reading and really enjoying this. I got your book and on Saturday afternoon, and I finished it this afternoon. Wow, I, that's I that's dedication. That's a long. I, that book is actually, I think, longer than War and Peace. <laughs> <laughs> I have bed sores from reading it, but, <laughs> but it is available in in paper or, or Kindle. And there's also an audio version in which I read it to you in my dulcet tones. And for <laughs> all, no lie, Neil, when we were getting ready for this, and and Jeremy mentioned the audio book, I said I need to listen to that because I want to hear the dulcet tones of Neil Ross. I said the exact same thing. Well, if you go to neilbook.com, the audio book is available there. Some people prefer to do business with Audible. It's available on Audible also. 
but that there's no link from from my website. You got to go directly to Audible if you want to get it from those guys. But it is there. I see. Understood. I'd rather go from your link because it's easier than having to search around Audible for it. Let me tell you what I signed up for Audible's uh, three free months, and I I went to unsubscribe because I hadn't been using it. Mm-hmm. That was nearly impossible. <laughs> Boy, it ended up in a slew of emails. So just go to his website. Yeah. Um, but toward the end of your book. Uh, You say uh, that the book itself started out to be a short comedy monologue, and as you can see, things got seriously out of hand. So can you elaborate uh, the creation of this book? How did it come to be? Yeah, I did an appearance with Rob Paulson at the Improv in Hollywood. He does this thing called uh, a podcast called Talkin' Tunes. Yeah, And sometimes he takes a show on the road, and uh, in this case, he did a night uh, dedicated to Transformers. And we were at the Improv, and I almost didn't go because the Improv is a famous comedy venue, and I'm not a stand-up, you know. But uh, at the last minute, I said, oh, what the hell? And I went down there, and I had a wonderful time. The place was packed with Transformers fans, and we all told stories, and there were a million laughs. And I thought, wow, maybe if I wrote a little monologue, I could book myself into places. I could do the monologue and then take questions from the audience and... uh, so I started to write this monologue, and it just got longer and longer and longer and longer. And then I didn't know what I was doing, because I never in, in a million years thought that I had the, I don't know what the word is, the, the discipline to write an entire book. Right. So finally, I started to play a little game with myself. I said, I'm not writing a book. I'm just writing this chapter. And maybe that's all I'm ever going to do. And when that chapter would finish, I would find myself thinking of another chapter, and I would run the phrases that I was coming up with in my mind as I was going about my daily chores. And eventually, after, I don't know, a week or 10 days, when uh, I hit critical mass, I would lunge for the keyboard and type that chapter out. And it just kept going like that. It took me a year to write the thing. And I really only admitted I was writing a book when I was on about the last three chapters. I thought, well, you got to finish it. <laughs> You're so close to the finish line. But it all. But the initial thing was me trying to write this this monologue. And what was it Benjamin Disraeli said in his letter to Queen Victoria? Madam, I apologize for writing such a long letter. I didn't have time to write a brief one. <laughs> <laughs> So I like that saying. I'd never heard that. Yeah. So oh, he was a bright cat. So, you know, I'm sorry the book is as long as it is. I didn't have time to write a short one. <laughs> but, you know, it's it's funny because there are times you'll read a book that you can tell someone either feel they had to or maybe were pushed into it. This is very much opposite. You didn't necessarily want to write a book, but a book was coming to you. And again, it tells on those pages. I mean, I sat down with this book thinking, okay, I'm going to look through here, do some research, and I just, my notebook didn't get touched for like the next three to four hours because I couldn't put it down. So, I mean, it, it, it shows that, you know, it's just... Uh, it's, there's passion to it. Thank you, Randy. Always there to pick the words that I, <laughs> that I, I drop. You. I thank you for that, <laughs> sir. I, yeah, it's funny. I, I'm so lazy. You know, I have to force myself to get down to the key on the keyboard. But it is kind of fun playing with language and trying to write it in a way that uh, you you try to capture your voice, you know, Mm. and and write it in a way that it's a way you're conversing with the reader rather than just putting things down on. Well, 
paper. Right. And uh, so, yeah, I it was work, but I, I had a lot of fun. And, of course, I, I was dealing with my favorite topic, me. And um, I didn't have an editor somewhere going, we've got to have this thing by the first. Or it's all, are we taking the money back? You know, I could take as long as I wanted and goof around and not do anything for two weeks and not feel guilty. And maybe that helped. I don't, I don't know what it would be like to write under pressure. I don't know. I don't know. For me, anytime I've had to write under pressure, it doesn't turn out well. Yeah, same here. Yeah. I come up with something in the spur of the moment. I think that's pretty good. And then after the deadline, oh my God, that was horrible. What was I thinking? Very good. Very good. Now, in, early in the book, you say that uh, hearing Little Richard's Tutti Frutti for the first time is what uh, really kind of blew your mind and got you interested in music and was kind of your start into radio. Now, you also uh, have said in your book and in interviews and stuff that as a child you were, uh, you know, playing with your voice, playing, doing different voices and stuff. And I'm just very curious as to uh, what your vocal inspirations were at those times, or who, rather. Well, it was a really a spontaneous uh, thing. I, I don't know what, <clears throat> why I did it. I was, I don't know, five, six, seven years old. I listened to the radio a lot. And at that point, I, I had no interest in music. None, none of it did anything for me. So I would tune around listening to people talk, even if I didn't really understand what they were talking about. And I found myself fascinated by the different accents and the different voices, the high ones, the low ones, the gravelly ones. And and I found myself just spontaneously starting to reproduce what I was hearing that, that came from the radio. And then when I got a bit older, inspiration, huge inspiration, and uh, you guys I'm sure have never heard of this, but it was a, a very influential English radio comedy show. It influenced Monty Python, all of those guys listened to this show when they were, they're, they're roughly my age, and, and so we all listened as kids. It was called The Goon Show. Nice. And in this country, goon means a henchman who breaks your legs, but that doesn't have the same meaning in England. So it was this fantastically hilarious show with, it's so hard to describe, but it is available online. Just put in The Goon, G-O-O-N Show, uh, into Mr. Google, and he will take you where you need to go. And it was done by three, uh, well, there were other people involved, but the main uh, guys were uh, uh, Spike Milligan, who wrote a lot of the, the stuff, a guy named Harry Seacombe, and a, a very young, then unknown, Peter Sellers, who later would go on to become a huge movie star in the Pink Panther films. And Sellers was just astonishing. He must have done, I don't know, somewhere between 10 and 15 different characters in this thing. And what I began to, to notice in my little 12-year-old way was that while these voices were absolutely ridiculous, he was creating believable characters. They just had odd voices, but you could close your eyes and see them. It was, it was absolutely marvelous and, and, and a huge, huge inspiration on my humor and also my desire to do the same kind of thing. So that, that, that was a major influence on me. You mentioned the Little Richard, the love for Elvis. Uh, I know being a DJ, you had exposure to a lot of different kinds of music during your radio career. Are there any uh, of today's music acts that, that you enjoy or inspire you? Well, I probably should listen more, you know, to the newer stuff, but I I find myself gravitating back to the I've got that satellite radio, uh, the Sirius XM and 
I find myself uh, spending most of my time on the classic vinyl channel or the classic rewind channel. And, uh, you know, I, my daughter keeps saying, oh, there's this other great stuff out there now, you know. And I, no, no, there's not so much. No, there's not. <laughs> well, you know, it's a funny thing. It's like back in the late 50s, early 60s and on right into the 70s, the music was all we had. By we, I mean the young people, basically the baby boomer generation. All the rest of the media was for quote-unquote grown-ups. The only thing we had that was ours was this rock and roll music. And uh, we had a passion for it that I don't think is possible today because there are so many other distractions for young people. I mean, the, the social media thing is, is just, it's all-consuming. There's so much stuff flowing in through these little telephones and telephones. You know what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> and the internet and blah, blah, blah. We didn't have any of that back then. All we had of the popular culture that was ours was this music. And we were very, very passionate about it. And the people who made it, especially the ones that got inspired by the 50s people and then started making their own music about 10 years later mm -hmm. in the mid to late 60s. Uh, these people were on a mission. Now, part of the mission involved a lot of uh, extracurricular activities, but <laughs> they were really trying to make a statement. And now I don't hear much of that these days. It's more like we're, we're, we're just trying to make a hit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, uh, and some of them do make hits, but I, to me, I listen to a lot of it, and to me, I call it ear candy. It's if you're not... lucky, I, I mean, I'm and I'm glad to hear this. I never, I wouldn't have pegged you a, like a Cardi B fan or anything like that. <laughs> and I'm really glad you're not. So thank God for that. <laughs> well, I'm sure there's some wonderful stuff out there. It, uh, I, I just don't get. I guess I don't get to hear it. Because I'm just not listening to the right the right channels. You know? I, I, I feel like you have to wade through a lot of crap to find anything yeah. uh, good nowadays. Anything but new, yeah. That's definitely. really, I mean, any medium you go to, television, podcasts, music. I mean, you got there's a lot of stuff out there. You know, so much. Well, it's like trying to figure out what to watch on Netflix. There's that's exactly so my much point. There, you get lost in it. And nine know. times out of ten, what you decide on is crap. Yep. You know, so I'll start again. <laughs> or that or just like, screw it, I'm going to bed. Yep. Now and then you stumble on a gem, and that's what keeps you coming back, I guess. Right? That's exactly yeah. it. Of all the podcasts I've tried listening to and finding, I've got like two <laughs> that I, I check back on that, to that well weekly. You know, other than that, I'm just like, yeah, yeah. Mine is ours. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's not ours. It's <laughs> <laughs> I'm not that self-righteous. I can't listen to any others, but <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God, no! Podcast I'd like to get involved in. Apparently, some of the some of them are recreating. Uh, uh, well, they're they're actually cre creating a new. Uh, it's not radio, but but audio drama, uh, like the old time golden age of radio, which right. I heard is. I would love to uh, participate in something like that. I, oh, I've wow. often thought I, I I was I was born in the wrong time period. I think the ideal job for me would have been radio actor. But, you know, uh, the, that radio drama ended the year I graduated from high school. So forget right. that. Well, you're in luck, Neil, because <laughs> one of the things we just start doing, <laughs> we start doing radio dramas, doing radio plays of uh, like old comic books that have been forgotten and stuff. Mm -hmm. and we just did our first one. And boy, was it fun. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. Yeah, it really was.
But yeah, there needs to be. I I have seen there are some uh, people doing podcasts like that. There was a Wolverine podcast that came out was yeah. sponsored by Marvel, yeah. but uh, I wasn't the biggest fan. It was okay for what it was. It was it was good. I guess yeah. the, the voice acting and stuff was really good, but the story wasn't great. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> but uh, they're trying to make a comeback. But um, one another thing, Neil, you talk about in your book that I was uh, very curious about, and I've definitely heard about was uh, you know when Ronald Reagan took office, you know deregulation. You know, uh, all these FCC regulations, uh, you know, on the advertising to children and stuff like that, that we're keeping our cartoons primarily what in like a in a three hour time block on Saturday mornings. And you uh, use the quote, you know, the producers and broadcasters were a bit like long cage birds. It took them a while to notice the cage door had opened. But once they did, a lot happened. So um, I'm just curious, you know, as far as. What were these regulations? I mean, was it more on the time slot or were there a lot other things, a lot uh, more freedoms that they found as a result? It had to do with uh, commercials, how many commercials you could run. You know, I don't know specifically. I didn't research it that deeply. Suffice it to say that when they deregulated, it suddenly became economically feasible to do these uh, shows in the uh, afternoon when the kids got out of school. And usually it would be, well, in the bigger markets, it would be on one of the local independent stations that wasn't running network programming. Uh, Here in L.A., Channel 5 and Channel 11 uh, ran a lot of cartoons. And, you know, depending on where you where you happen to live at that time, suddenly there was this uh, this whole explosion of uh, of shows, whereas prior to that time, they were all trapped in that Saturday morning uh, time slot. And that was it. There was nothing during the week. And uh, when that happened, um, boy, uh, Voltron came along and they did, you know, these uh, the stuff that ran on Saturday mornings, they do 13 episodes and that was it. They just go into reruns. And then the next year they might do eight and put wow. those into the mix. But suddenly Voltron came along and they did 120 episodes in a, in a relatively short space of time. And I was lucky enough to be in that show. And we were lucky and then enough the thing to grow up in that time. Yeah, really. <laughs> there was also uh, there were restrictions on toys, which I think got taken off. I, I was also in the first show that was based on a toy or kind of a toy, and that was Pac-Man, which was actually a, a video game. And, and this is going all the way back to where if you wanted to play a video game, you had to go to an arcade. Mm-hmm. You guys old enough to remember those days? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God, yes. <laughs> okay, well, yeah, so Pac-Man was this incredibly popular arcade game, and they created a show around it at Hanna-Barbera, and I was in that one as Clyde the Ghost Monster. Ooh. And uh, prior to that, you know, they would create a show like Scooby-Doo, and it would run for a while, and then they might, you know, make a Scooby-Doo lunchbox or something. But it completely turned around. The toys were created before the shows. And in some cases, uh, the shows were taken off the air because the toys didn't do well. Um, that was the case with they the Ninja were, Turtles. I, with the what? I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I just said I thought that was, I think that's the case uh, with the Ninja Turtles. The toys the came so before that, the cartoons yeah. did. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not sure about that one. But I, I, and I, was, I was in one show where... Uh, we were supposed to do 65, and at the last minute they said, no, we're just doing five, and that's the end of it. And we, we were told the reason that it, that had happened was that the toys had been tested, and uh, the kids didn't like them, so they just scrapped the whole thing. 
So, but it, it, it just made for this avalanche of production beginning uh, somewhere around 1984, 85, 86. Suddenly, you know, we were just working like crazy, just running from session to session to session to session. It was amazing. I couldn't have been born in a better year. I was born in 81, so the beginning of my conscious memory is <laughs> the same years he's talking about. Like, I love that. So, you know, obviously, you've been a part of Voltron, G.I. Joe, and uh, a list that we could sit here for an hour naming, but Transformers is probably at the top of that list. So, and I know, you know, you've said in your book and interviews that you've done so many interviews that, or excuse me, uh, auditions, that it's hard to remember, uh, you know, the audition that landed you some of these big roles but when it comes to transformers one do you remember you know how that came into your life first and two what was your uh, first impression of these uh, alien uh, robot cars <laughs> <laughs> yeah i was well i was working on uh, gi joe <clears throat> and gi joe and transformers were produced by the same company and they were voice directed by the same guy a guy named wally burr so I'm doing, as I said, I'm doing um, uh, G.I. Joe. And at a certain point, my agents called up and said, uh, you know, Wally's doing another show. It's called Transformers. Are you interested in reading for that? And I said, of course. And I honestly don't remember which part I got. I got Hook, Slag and Bone Crusher in relatively quick succession. And then uh, sometime later, I got the character of Springer. But I don't I don't remember any of those auditions in particular. The only audition in that whole period that, that I do remember in any kind of detail is the audition that got me the um, the part of shipwreck in G.I. Joe. That one I do remember. But the rest of them, you know, they, 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 they all the best advice I ever got is that, you know, the rejection ratio in in show business is pretty high when I was absolutely smoking hot. I was averaging one job for every 11 auditions. Oh, wow, that's really good. You know, I mean, and nowadays people go hundreds of auditions without yeah. a job. But back then I was one for 11, and I maintained that for about 10 years. Wow. <clears throat> but as good as that sounds, remember, that's 10 no's for every yes. Right. So the best advice I ever got was uh, treat the audition as if it's a job and once you get out of there, try to forget it as quickly as possible. Because you just drive yourself crazy. Why didn't I get that? Sure. What did I do wrong? And nine times out of ten, it's nothing to do with you. It's some silly reason that, that you have no control over anyway. So you dwell on it too much, that'll just push you to stop. Yeah, it's it's best just to put just to try to forget it. And I got pretty good at forgetting auditions and I saved you a lot of stress over the years. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does. It really because you just sit there and you beat up on yourself. Why isn't the phone ringing? What the hell's wrong? What am I doing wrong? <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> going back over kind of your long, lengthy list of uh, credentials, you were in uh, three of my favorite childhood uh, movies slash. Uh, well, I guess we call them one-offs. Maybe American Tale. You played, uh, I believe, the mayor. Uh, mouse in it uh, the uh, honest uh, john. i'm sorry honest john yes <laughs> and then uh also you did the voice for uh, little nemo escape from uh dream world which i loved as a kid a couple parts freaked me out but then um you were also you did nightcrawler in the pride of the x-men pilot which was my first kind of introduction to the x-men so it was just the the range of the voices between those three it just blew my mind 
Yeah, that uh, Pride of the X-Men, they should have made that show. I tell you, more people reference that. And it was one uh, pilot episode that mm -hmm. I guess they threw on the air. And it's 30, I don't know how many years later, and people still reference it. It's it was amazingly put together. I mean, the music was great. The voice acting was phenomenal. I mean, it. I mean, they made a video game off of it too. I believe a big arcade game. So, oh, was that what that was based mm -hmm. on? Yep. I didn't realize that with the big arcade one, mm -hmm. like the cabinet. That's yeah. why Dazzler and everybody else is in it. Oh, never even heard of that show. Before. See, we learned something today. <laughs> we learned something here from the youngest one here. How about wow. that? <laughs> <laughs> Who'd have thunk it? Unlike uh, so many of the, you mentioned Springer before, unlike so many of the uh, season three cast for Transformers, you got to, to voice Springer in the movie. Do you know any reason that they didn't cast a celebrity for your character? <laughs> no. Uh, you know, communication between uh, the higher ups in New York and us uh, lowly actors out on the coast were non-existent, basically. I can only guess. I got the uh, the Springer part, and I had recorded a few episodes as Springer and when the movie came along, and I don't know if any of them had even aired. Maybe, and I don't know why they did, what they did basically was put celebrities in who would later be replaced right. by us plain rap actors for the TV version of the show. But maybe because my character had already been in some episodes, they decided not to do that. Or maybe they felt the part just wasn't big enough to interest a celebrity. I don't know. Uh, it sure was lucky for me because yeah. the other characters I played in the show, I had almost no lines. But uh, the, the Springer part was pretty, pretty good. And uh, I got, of course, I got to utter the immortal line. Uh, I've got better things to do tonight than die. Yes. <laughs> Makes me wonder why they had to cast celebrities for the movies because it's not like they're for the parents the kids had no idea if anything kids are smart enough to know that that's not the same voice that was on the cartoon that they watched oh it, it made me mad i actually didn't see the movie until after i had seen the third season so i knew ultra magnus as you know jack angel's voice and i knew hot rod as dick gautier's voice mm -hmm. you know then i see the movie and springer's right but Hot Rod yeah. and Galvatron and all these others are all messed up. And I was mad. It's so funny. This reminds me of a story I heard Tom Hanks say where he was in an elevator at a hotel and a, what was it, a father and his a little girl walked in the elevator and she was carrying a Woody doll. Oh, I know the story you're talking well, about. Well, you know, as the father and Tom Hanks were talking, he reached down, grabbed the Woody doll and autographed it and gave it back. And it just sent this girl into hysterics. You just ruined my doll. Mm -hmm. Why would you oh. write all over my doll? You know, she, she didn't care about the celebrity behind it. She just cared about the doll. You know yeah. what I mean? Well, we argue endlessly about, about the celebrities in, in animation and... Um, you know, that ship has sailed. The only chance we plain rap actors have is, you know, playing third uh, thug from the left. <laughs> who, who says oof twice. I'm no fan of the celebrity doing the voice actors because no. they always they're just always being themselves. It's just it's just their voice. It's well, it's, some of them bring bring quite a bit to the table. I mean, I always reference uh now I'm having a brain fart. Um, <laughs> uh, Robin Williams in... Um, oh, he was a special breed. Yeah. yeah. I've, I've always said if all Robin Williams, Williams ever did was uh, uh, voiceovers, he would have been a top, one of the top guys in the business. I mean, uh, the, the, the stuff that he did in Aladdin was uh, astonishing. 
And and some of them, you know, as I said, bring a, a fair amount to the table. But others, uh, you know, they basically uh, rely on their faces to do the work. And I don't think they've given a great deal of thought to, to their voices. Right. And they show up and, and this is a situation where they can't see you. You know, I remember Wally Bird telling me a story, but he was working with a celebrity, wouldn't tell me who. But he said the guy did the line and he said, OK, that's that's the that's what I need. But I'm going to need a lot more energy. Same attitude, but much more energy. OK, take two. Said the guy read it exactly the same way. And he tried like three or four times. And he said, I honestly don't think he was being a jerk. He said his face changed. It did interesting things, but the voice remained exactly the same. He couldn't get any more energy out of him. And, uh, well, there you go. It is hard to, with just a little bit of voice acting we've done with our little audio dramas, to to try to get a point across in just using your voice. Oh, it's hard. And what we've recorded is horrible, but it's it's still fun. (laughs) Yeah, it is. It's still fun. But, you know, at the same time, we, being podcasters, I mean, obviously not to the extent, you know, that voice actors like Neil have felt, but when we started doing this in 2013, there were a few celebs that had podcasts, but it was kind of niche. And within the past few years, now it's caught on in... Every podcast or every celebrity has a podcast and it's just infuriating that they're just bringing in their inherent crowd and taking up the airwaves from us people who are out there really grinding and striving and God damn it, you know, just (laughs) just click on it once. But well, um, now you know how we felt. Yeah, Um, exactly. Exactly. Were were any of the uh, other Transformer guys, did they ever express any uh, disapproval or being upset about being left out of the movie when they had already started voicing those characters for the for the TV show? Well, I said, you know, the big thing was a lot of them started leafing through the script and discovering their characters get killed. And it's like, yeah. wait a minute, you know? And uh, I just knew that the film was doomed. I mean, they killed Optimus <laughs> Prime. Yeah, they did. I hope I'm not spoiling it for you. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. You know, and I, I, I say this is I, they just I don't think they realize what they had with uh, with Peter Cullen and, and, and the Optimus Prime character. I liken it to, well, we're going to do another big uh, Mission Impossible movie with Tom Cruise. Only in this one, halfway through the movie, Tom Cruise's character dies and gets replaced by somebody you never heard of. <laughs> well, that's a that's a plan. <laughs> See how that works. Right? <laughs> and that's essentially that's essentially what they did. They killed their star in the middle of the movie and we talked to fans at conventions and they say that the death of Optimus Prime was one of the uh, most traumatic experiences of their childhood, you know. And, uh, right. And you know what's uh, uh, so weird, too, is the fact that when the, what was it, the second or third Michael Bay Transformer film, like they did it again. The second one. Yeah. They like killed him off and he was like dead the whole movie. And I just kept sitting there scratching my head like, have we learned nothing? <laughs> Now, Neil, I'd heard a rumor that because they, they did the G.I. Joe movie the next year or around that time, that they had planned to kill off Duke, but they changed it at the last minute because of the Optimus Prime negative yeah. feedback. It was, actually, it, it was actually supposed to be a theatrical release, okay. but uh, the uh, Transformers movie did so poorly that they said, no, 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 we're not going to release it as a movie. We'll just make a mini series out of it for television. And yeah, yeah, Duke was supposed to die. And um but they changed it to he he's in a coma. Okay. 
crafty, right? Yeah, they didn't just even, crafty. They didn't even reanimate any of it. They just had the line said from a character who was off screen. It's going to be okay. Yeah. <laughs> who the hell was that? <laughs> we used to, um, actually based on, a, on an offhanded comment made by a producer, one of the women in the cast, I can't remember, but she came in. She hadn't worked on the show in a while, and she walks in. She's booked to do a session, and the producer, hey, hi, I haven't seen you in a while. Well, I haven't been in the show lately. He says, yeah, well, it, your doll's not selling, and he walked out. <laughs> <laughs> She didn't know if he was kidding or not. None of us did. And we started joking about it. You know, if you don't, if you're not booking, uh, run down to Toys R Us and buy, oh, I don't know, a dozen of your action figures and see if they'll put you back in the show. <laughs> and so my, my joke is that, uh, that the Duke is in a coma, but he will no doubt revive if his toy starts selling again. Oh, sure. <laughs> and did, I don't know. Did he ever revive? He did. He did. Okay. Yeah. At the very oh. end, Duke's going to be okay. Excuse my ignorance. Michael, Michael Bell ran out and bought a couple of Duke figures in the, in, during the intermission. <laughs> <laughs> you, you'd mentioned uh, the cons. You attended TF Con in 2017, and you were there with uh, Jack Angel. And I know you're not going to remember any of this, so. Uh, I'm not delusional or anything like that, but uh, I had you. I had an original Springer figure from from '86 that was that was still in the box, and I had you autograph it. And mm-hmm. while we were uh, standing around talking, and you were signing that, I had asked you a question, and you you said well, that's a good question. Ask me that at the panel. Well, we got to the panel, and the line was so long. And I didn't feel like getting in line to ask the question. So I wrote it down so I could ask you now. And okay. uh, (laughs) the question I had was the the characters that that most people know you for are Springer and Shipwreck. Uh, And I mentioned that both of them are kind of wise guy, smart aleck types. And I was curious if if that was on purpose, that, that you had been cast for the smart aleck guys, because that was that was a character trait of yours, or if it just kind of worked out that way. Yeah, it just kind of worked out that way. The shipwreck thing, that as I said, that's an audition that I I do remember quite well. I can I can go through it if you want or not, but you yeah, sure. Uh, well, I showed up uh, at uh, Wally Burr's old soundtrack studio on Ventura Boulevard, and uh, there's a drawing of a sailor and a one paragraph description and uh, I go in and I do a couple of approaches and I can tell nobody is very thrilled and I'm just about to say well that's all I've got I guess I'll be on my merry way and there was a guy over in the corner and he said have you ever seen the movie The Last Detail (laughs) and fortunately I had and I don't know if that rings a bell with any of you guys Mm -hmm. yes yes it's uh it's a small uh, but lovely little Hal Ashby movie about a couple of sailors who are assigned the unpleasant task of taking a third sailor to the brig where he will have to do eight years hard time. And they decide this is very unjust and they're going to show him a good time before he has to go in the brig. And one of the sailors, uh, the character of Billy Badass Badusky, is played by Jack Nicholson. And it's a wonderful performance. In fact, he was nominated for Best Actor. He didn't win that year, but he was nominated. But in quick succession, out came uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest in Chinatown, and everybody kind of forgot about the last detail. 
detail meaning assignment in military parlance. So anyway, I, thank goodness, had seen the movie. And what flashed into my mind was this scene that happens in a bar where the bartender threatens to call the shore patrol. And because of their assignment, they've been handed weapons. So Jack hauls out this giant uh, 45 caliber semi-auto and says, you want the shore patrol? We are the mother bleeping shore patrol, slams the gun on the bar. <laughs> and I had done this voice uh, intermittently that people said was sort of Nicholson-esque. And so I plugged that voice in and started reading the lines and suddenly everybody came to life, you know. And when I finished, the guy in the corner said, you got it, yeah, which is usually the kiss of death. But in this case, uh, <laughs> and so that's how I got shipwrecked. <clears throat> and yeah, he was uh, just about one of the most rewarding characters I've ever had to play, because if you think about it, everybody in G.I. Joe was either really, really good or really, really bad, mm -hmm. whereas Shipwreck was kind of a mixture. He wanted to do the right thing, but he doesn't like to take orders. And so he's very conflicted, and that, that's a wonderful character to get to play. And Springer, Springer is sort of more, he's not devious the way uh, Shipwreck is. He's, he's kind of straight ahead and right there. And yeah, he does, he, he does quips and, and flirts with uh, the female robot, but... <laughs> He, uh, <laughs> I don't think, and, and neither one of these guys, I, I am not in any way, shape, or form like either one of those characters, not even a little bit. That's the fun of acting. You get to do things that you don't normally do in real life, you know? Right, right. And it's, um, it's, it's fun. And then you don't have to go to jail or anything. You, <laughs> you get, hey. That's the best part. <laughs> yeah. I've got a question for you here. I'm a huge uh, fan of the 90s Spider-Man, and you obviously uh, portrayed Norman Osborn in the Green Goblin in that. And uh, I, I, was it Nathaniel helped me? Uh, Spider-Man and his amazing friends. Yeah, that you also portrayed uh, Norman Osborn in that series. But yeah, the one in the 90s is the one that uh, I remember the most. And reading your book, you said something. You recall a moment that kind of made me think of you portraying those characters. You were talking about uh, witnessing uh, Frank Welker in the booth uh, doing two voices that there were like two voices he was doing that were having like a heated conversation with each other and to the point where the dialogue was even like getting to overlap and like the people in the booth were saying we're gonna have to do another cut you know you overlapped but it was all him and so it just kind of made me think of well i wonder how uh neil was you know doing uh his norman osborne having the dialogue with the green goblin because you know, not only was there a lot of back and forth there, but, you know, from, you know, just a very businessman kind of voice to that high, awful, you know, the, the, the goblin voice. So did you, did, were your methods the same when uh, taking on this character or were those parts recorded separately? How was that done? I wish I could remember. Um, <laughs> I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm not going for laughs. It's it's true. Uh, somebody uh, actually sent me the link. That scene is available on YouTube. He's looking at himself in a mirror and he's going in and out of the goblin. Yeah. And uh, they asked that question. How did you do that? And, you know, I sat and I looked at that in amazement. I had I just have no conscious memory of having done that. And I and I can't answer the question. I don't remember. Generally speaking, what happens is when you have a scene with yourself, the director will say, how do you want to do this? You want to do them one at a time and I'll read the other part? Or do you want to try and get it all in one take? And you sort of 
depending on how you're feeling that day, you either choose option A or option B. And I'd like to think I did that all in one take, but it's entirely possible that I, I did two takes and somebody glued them together. I wish I could remember, to be Either honest way, with you. though, I mean, it's impressive. It's very impressive because if they were done in two takes, I mean, I, you are legendary for a reason. I know it's your job. So uh, even if it was filmed separate or taped separately, you know, it sounds like it's it's dialogue happening. But, man, just the, the difference in the voice if it were all filmed live, like I can't imagine the struggle. But, again, you're a legend for a reason now, aren't you? One thing I wanted to ask you about is, you know, you were talking, we touched on deregulation earlier, you know, in the early 80s to where this allowed for the flood of cartoons and entertainment that uh, made our lives worth living (laughs) as kids in the (laughs) 80s. But uh, you also talk about uh, then at the top of the 90s where there was a kind of a change in demographic. Uh, The target audience was kind of now Gen Xers. It it kind of became where having experience and having tenure and being who you were was kind of working against you. Uh, They were wanting to bring in unknown people, people with little to no talent running it, hiring people with little to no talent. And I think you would kind of mention that, you know, over the past uh, 10 to 20 years, that's kind of been on the backswing, but do you do you still uh, feel that these days, or what's what's the industry look like now? No, I think sanity has has returned little <laughs> little bit at a time. This actually happened after the turn of the century in the early two thousands. They just got rid of a, a lot of the old producers. This was not just animation; it was commercials, it was everything, and they replaced them with younger people. Uh, many of whom had served little or no apprenticeship, and they started to reinvent the wheel. And uh, there was this concept that all they were interested in was reaching young people, and that uh, young people didn't want to hear anything that had gone on before. They were too media savvy for that, and the, the answer to everything was to hire beginners. So you essentially had beginners directing beginners. Right. And some genuinely awful stuff got on the air. I remember, uh, you know, I'd be looking at television, a commercial would come on, it looked gorgeous, and the music was wonderful, and the graphics, and the guy who's doing the voiceover is kind of not up to the... And I thought, oh, my God. (laughs) They ran ran the temp track by mistake, you know? (laughs) That's where they put just a voice in there for timing purposes. But right. I realized, no, this is they actually cast this poor devil and, and he's he's on the air. And, and this is the new reality. In some cases, they would call the agents and they would say, we're auditioning for this and that. Do not send anyone who's ever done voiceovers before. We don't want it, anyone at the audition. We want com- total beginners, top to bottom. And um it was a crazy time, I'll tell you, but little by little, sanity leaked back into the business, and I, I think we're in a better place now. It's it's not like it was in the good old days, but then how can it be? You know, nothing yeah. ever, life has changed. I like how you kind of described, you know, the return of sanity coming in back in the last 10 to 20 years. Uh, how did you phrase it exactly? The inexperienced have now been experienced enough <laughs> to know better or something to that effect. I love the way that was worded. Well, I think a lot of them learned on the job 
But I, I remember at the height of this stuff of talking to an engineer who'd been around. You know, the engineers didn't get replaced because they actually have to know what they're doing. <laughs> and uh, he said, oh, you wouldn't believe it. He said four or five of these kids come in with these backward baseball hats on and they bring a kid in who doesn't know what he's doing and they spend four hours on one commercial and it's absolutely rotten. <laughs> And they all high five each other and leave. And he says, "And this is what this is what goes on today. It's just you can't fight city hall somehow." <laughs> you mentioned rotten. One of the shows that that you uh, did that uh, didn't get quite the attention was Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. And uh, I've heard you on more than one occasion talk about how how much fun it was to play Whitley White. Uh, what about that character was was so much fun? Well, I was sort of uh, basing the voice on this uh, local uh, Los Angeles newscaster who uh, he went all the way back to the 50s and uh, eventually ended up on radio. He, he lost the television gig, but he had one of these kind of voices and he was in love with the sound of his own voice. And I sort of... Uh, <laughs> And then I loved the character of Whitley, who was the only new, uh, the only broadcaster in this little town of San Zucchini, where Attack of the Killer Tomatoes takes place, uh, to the point that he would be in the studio and he would throw it to himself in the field, you know. Now with a live report on this uh, breaking news, uh, let's go to our on-the-street reporter, Whitley White. Thank you, Whitley. <laughs> I'm down to the pier or whatever it is. And it was very cleverly written. And I, I would do these long speeches as Whitley White, and I would be this close to breaking up. I never actually did, but I was right on the razor's edge of just losing it and, and, and you know, cackling with laughter because I just thought the whole thing was so damn funny and absurd. <laughs> I had a lot of fun playing Whitley White. And, uh, you know, I told that, you that's the story. I never even watched that one. I don't remember seeing it on TV at all. I, I remember it being on, but... Um... I remember the movie was something I wasn't allowed to see at that young age, but I was allowed to watch the cartoon. And uh, but again, just I don't think the I don't think the cartoon had much to do with the movie. No, Uh, I remember the cartoon. It had like a there was a good tomato, but it was like a puppy dog or something like that. Almost, I think it had like like a Slimer vibe to it. Exactly, it had like more green coming out the top of it than the bad ones or something to that. It's been a long time. It's been a long time, but. Um, I've got a question uh, really quick for you here, and this might be a little self-serving because um, I'm just chopping up to straight curiosity on my part. But I was listening to an interview you were doing with uh, Kevin Levine, which is somebody used to work with in radio on his podcast, Hollywood and Levine. And mm-hmm. you had said something on there. Um, I can't remember who you were referring to, but you were referring to a DJ who was signing off for the last time and saying, you know, all the things, you know, the one thing he was going to miss the most was talking to this, this character, this perfect listener he had imagined in his head that he had just referred to as you. And that, uh, that was going to be the thing that broke his heart the most, not being able to talk to this, this fictional character. And I had heard you then say that, uh, you know, you had used this same kind of practice that when you were on the radio, you know, you, you could envision this perfect listener, but at the same time, if you were to pass them on the street, you wouldn't know them if you had passed them. And that, you know, doing what we're doing here as podcasters, that was just very intriguing to me. I thought that might be very good practice. But at the same time, I kind of don't know where to begin as far as the development of that that perfect listener. I mean, how is that? How do you build that character? I don't know. 
to be honest with you. It's it just what you're trying to do is transcend all this equipment and transmitters and electronics and break it back down into one person communica communicating with another. And I don't know who, you know, very much about my ideal listener other than I don't even know if it's a man or a woman. Um, it's just so, somebody who appreciates what I'm doing, somebody that I can, who is receptive to what I have to say. And so I am able to uh, open up and talk to him or her. Uh, you know, in some cases, it never happened anywhere I worked, but uh, some cases they would, the program director would get a picture of a, a pretty girl and, and, and post it in the studio right where the DJ's eye level was and say, talk to her nope. when you're on it. Talk to her. That had never worked uh, for me. Why yeah. is that? I'd sit there with nothing but dead air, probably. <laughs> well, it's probably not like a Playboy spread. It's no, just a I picture know. of a girl. <laughs> I don't know what to tell her. No, I think it was, very, you know, a tasteful headshot. Right. Nothing, nothing, uh, nothing naughty. <laughs> but just to, just to give, give them some sort of a a target, if you will, rather than, okay, everybody, you know, it's uh, sure. talk, talk to one person. It's, um, it's a tough thing to, to do. It's, uh, you, you just, I don't really know how to, how to tell you to cultivate it. it. It just something that it was just something that gradually happened the, the longer I was in the business. It's something I want to try to practice try to work on. Maybe I'll start just putting a, who should I put a picture up of? Cardi B. <laughs> yeah, you won't be liking anything I say then, I promise. It will not be a flattering conversation. You've been a part of so many properties over the years. Have you collected anything from all the different all the different jobs you've had, be it scripts or or the toys or or the games or with all the different voiceovers you've done in video games? No, I have a couple of toys that fans have given me. I did save scripts, and uh, when we moved, I threw away a lot of them. I, I filled up an entire recycling dumpster. My wife said, get rid of it. <laughs> but I hung up to what I thought were probably the ones people would, would want, and I, I donated them all. I thought about trying to sell them, and I just, oh, I, I, you know, I wasn't doing conventions at that point. And so I essentially donated them to charity. The, I, a woman that I know who's involved in uh, trying to do things for animals, uh, she took them and they had an auction and they raised a bunch of money and, and helped some animals. So that's good. That's awesome. that's good. I think the hottest, the hottest ticket I had was um, the uh, uh, an original script from uh, the Transformers movie. And she ran around. She got it signed by virtually every actor in the movie that she could find, at least the, you know, the guys like us. I don't know that she was able to get any of the stars, but and that sold for a pretty penny, as I understand it. The only other thing I have is are, are scripts from uh, these live event shows I've done, like the Oscars and the Emmys and uh, the AFI Life Achievement Award telecasts. I've saved all of those. But that's about it. You mentioned that telecast really quick, and you know you've done some other big star-studded events like that. Do you ever cease to be nervous when doing those events? Has it ever just become like ho hum another day at work, or is it always just sweat on the brow at that moment? Yeah, it's never ho hum because it's not. You know, maybe if I did something like that once a week, it would be or 
or daily, it would become ho hum. I mean, I, I only got to do the Oscars once, and uh, I was I was uh, scared uh, shitless. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you. Well, I mean, you know, you you, you poke this uh, button, and and you're live worldwide, basically. It's the English-speaking world. And then inside the auditorium is the cream of Hollywood. And the last thing you want to do is be the idiot who screws up. I think you'd and watch me age I, 10 years and five minutes. <laughs> yeah, I tell you, it's, um, it's a wild ride, but I, I'm glad I did it. I'm glad I did it. It was a lot of fun. I bet. There was something you said in your book uh, about some advice you received. It was, don't believe your own BS. Um, yes. You mentioned, though, that it, it happened once where you forgot that advice. It happened for about two minutes, but I couldn't mm -hmm. find anywhere where you actually went on to tell us what it was that happened where you forgot that advice for a moment. I was wondering if you'd be willing to share that. Yeah, no, I actually did put it in and then I took it out because believe it or not, the book was a lot longer than all the time. <laughs> I just had a spectacular day in which I was booked solid all day long, I just went from one session to the next session to the next session. And finally, uh, it ended about six o'clock in the evening. I'm headed home. I drive down the Hollywood freeway. I get off on Vine and I go over that hill. There's the Capitol Records building and uh, all of Hollywood below me. And on the radio comes ZZ Top with I'm bad, I'm nationwide. And I thought, they're singing about me. That's me. I just did all these national commercials, and I did this, and I made a lot of money, and I look at me, and I'm rolling down the hill. And by the time I hit the red light at uh, Hollywood Boulevard, I started thinking about people like, oh, you know, Jeffrey Katzenberg and Steven Spielberg and, uh, you know, the real big people in this town. And I thought, you're, you're, you're just a a voiceover guy, get over yourself. <laughs> and then I remembered my old friend Otto who told me that saying, kid, don't ever start believing your own bullshit because the day you do, that's the beginning of the end. And I thought, wow, I came close, but I came to my senses. Great advice too. For all those different properties that, that you worked with, I know that a lot of times part of the contract is residual uh, checks for when they mm -hmm. go to syndication and things like that. Uh, do you still receive any of those residuals from from any of those older properties? Um, yes, but they're the amounts are uh, quite minuscule at this point. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll happy to take any money anyone wants to send me. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it, it's it, it doesn't. Like every time doesn't... Transformers the movie gets a new Blu-ray release, you get a, what, a check for forty-eight cents. Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, just to kind of wrap this up, and again, thank you for taking the time to talk with us, uh, Neil. This has, again, been surreal, and I again want to remind everyone, uh, Vocal Recall, I love the title, by the way, mm. A Life in Radio and VoiceOver. Uh, head to neilbook.com. You can get those first five chapters, free preview to download, free people. Don't I waste said time. free. Buy it. Buy it. Yeah, just get the whole book because yeah. you're, you're going to get hooked. But, uh, you know, if you're on the fence, you don't have to be. Five chapters are free. Gee, many Pete's. <laughs> um, but to wrap up, in your opinion, uh, Neil, why is it, you know, of all the characters you've done, of the long list you have on IMDb, why, in your opinion, have G.I. Joe and Transformers uh, stood above everything else for you? Yeah, that's interesting. We We... We talk about it a lot. We 
uh, actors who were in that. And at the, at the time, you know, they were condemned in some circles. People said, well, these are nothing but uh, half-hour toy commercials. But if that was true, uh, nobody would remember them all these years later. We wouldn't right. uh, be going to these conventions and being asked to sign autographs. And, uh, you know, they would have been long forgotten. And I, I think it was a, a lucky accident, whether accidental or by design, somehow the people that produced those two shows put together this team of writers and animators and actors and uh, am I leaving anybody out if, oh, uh, if I am? But, but essentially put together a team of people who it led to a situation where the whole became greater than the sum of its parts. Somehow it all came together and gelled and created something very, very special. And that's that's a kind of magic, you know. You can put four musicians together uh, till the cows come home, but you once only once in a while does a Beatles happen right. or a Rolling Stones. And we were sort of uh, like that. The whole became greater than the sum of its parts uh, on those two shows, and it was just you know just lightning struck and magic, man. And, yeah, Incredible. Exactly. It's It's been an absolute pleasure to have you here today, Neil. Is there anywhere else we should be directing people aside from uh, neilbook.com? Oh, no. If you, you know, if you have trouble uh, tracking the book down, just put in Neil Ross vocal recall in, uh, into Google and it will take you to some interesting places. Okay. Uh, what my, <laughs> the only thing I'm doing on a regular basis these days is uh, I'm the announcer on, on Press Your Luck. Oh. Which, yeah, which is actually a summer replacement series. I, I, I don't think it's on the air anymore, but hopefully it'll come back and be on next summer. And hopefully they'll ask me to come back and be the pronouncer again. So look for me there. And, um, you know, who knows? Star of stage, screen, and reefer parties. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be there. Well, Neil, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to uh, be here on the show with us. It's just been, again, surreal, man. Oh, well, thank you for inviting me. I've enjoyed myself. I had a good time. I enjoyed it. Sure hope so. And, Jack, what have we on the website, sir? Go to CandidatePodcast.com where you can see show highlights, guest info, listen to the show, follow us on all our social media, see some YouTube videos, buy some merch, become a patron, and if you'd like to be a guest and promote your work, send us an email on our contacts page. And don't forget to find us on Twitter at CandarePod and on Instagram and Cand underscore Air. And uh, again, that website Jack was just telling you about, CandarePodcast.com. Head over there and you can get merch and become a patron. $5 a month gets you access to that Candair Patreon pod. And what am I forgetting, Randy? Uh, just hop on every Tuesdays on either Facebook, Twitch, or YouTube and see Jack and I play some uh, Jackbox games, join us, and have some fun. There it is. Sometimes Wednesdays. <laughs> Sometimes, Sometimes Wednesdays. <laughs> Nathaniel, I want to thank you for coming out and oh. uh, sitting in, taking time to uh, be with us. He, this dude drove pleasure. quite a while to be here uh, tonight. Pleasure, quite a distance. When I heard Neil Ross was going to be... I was more than willing to make the drive. So thank you, Neil. This, this was oh, thank you, Nathaniel. I appreciate it. I appreciate it very much. Well, I think that's going to do it uh, for this episode. So until next time, I'm Jeremy Colley. I'm Jack Doherty. I'm Randy Hardenbrook. Nathaniel Tennant. And I'm Neil Ross, and I won't be back. <laughs> oh, don't say that. <laughs> thank you so much well, for not- listening, everyone, and be excellent to each other. Yeah, we bad. You need some wine.
a dog. Hi, puppy. Nice puppy. Oh, no. Don't run. It'll only make things worse. What? Remember, you never want to approach a stray dog, especially one that's foaming at the mouth. Get away from the animal as quickly as you can and tell a grown-up. And knowing is half the battle. G.I. This has been a Canned Air production. Don't you know that you're a grown-up? I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. I think that was good enough. I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? Right. I've never done it. (laughs) Right.